an alleged finger-pointing felony in Johnson County, and what's up with the T-bones? You're on Deep Background. Greetings, you're on Deep Background for October 16th, 2019. Dave Helling with the editorial board of the Kansas City Star, joining you for the podcast. And of course, my good friend and colleague, Leah Becerra, as always joining us, and Murray Williams, uh, education reporter extraordinaire for the Star. Uh, Murray, always great to have you aboard. Good to be here. Well, for the first half of the show, we're going to talk a little bit later about the big controversy over minor league baseball in Kansas City, Kansas. But the first half of the show is... Uh, a discussion of this story, Murray, that you had that just really lit up the world, I think, yeah. um, uh, concerning the arrest, and I think it's fair to say arrest, by yeah. a school oh, resource yeah. officer of a young lady in a middle school in the Shawnee Mission District who pointed her finger like a gun at some colleagues. Tell us basically what happened and, and why this became the story that it became. Well, basically what happened was there, it's a a classroom setting at West Ridge Middle School in the Shawnee Mission School District, as you said, and this young girl, 13 years old, um, in fact, she had just turned 13, um, was sort of um, egged on, if you will, or prompted by another student who asked her um, if you could kill five people in this classroom, who would they be? And she then formed her hand into a, what looks like a little finger pistol is what I call it. We all it. know about it, yeah, how that right. works. Exactly. Been doing that and for a long time, absolutely, most of us. Absolutely, <laughs> as kids and, and even as adults, and pointed at um, three other students in the class, and then at the person who asked the question, and then at herself. Um, and she was not. Was it in class? Was it? It wasn't at a recess or at no, a lunch table. No, it was table. in a classroom setting. And I, the, my understanding is now. Uh, let me just say that the district has declined to discuss the details of this at all because it, it involves a juvenile, it involves a student, and they, well, you know, privacy laws they cite. But from talking to um, her family members. Um, what I'm told is that they were having a discussion about human rights, and she said something to the effect of, you know, yeah, everybody doesn't have human rights, black people don't have human rights, and she's not African American, but she did say that, and the discussion went on from there, and then the student asks her this question, she points to uh, three students, the person who asked the question, and herself. There was a substitute in the classroom at the time. Um, and nothing really happened at that moment. Um, she goes home, the kids go home, and then overnight, apparently there are several calls that are made to the school's tip line that this young woman had pointed her finger at these kids, and these kids were scared for their life, and they felt very threatened. The next day she comes in, she's pulled into the principal's office, and then it goes from there. The SRO officer gets involved. Police officer. Right. And at, SRO, at the school. Absolutely. SRO is the school resource officer, who is a um, Overland Park policeman who works in the school and he um, takes her out of the school handcuffs her uh, arrests her uh, for criminal threatening which is a felony charge yeah and that's actually very helpful because what you're describing is something that happened the next day it wasn't a contemporaneous disruptive uh, you know the students standing up or walking out or whatever it actually 
but was based on complaints and then she wasn't taken into custody until the following day. Right. But also, I think that also gives a little bit more understanding to this. This young lady, according to family, had been the a victim of bullying um, and several of the students in the classroom who were involved in this incident were among those students who had been giving her a hard time um, throughout the year. So she had been bullied and picked on um, f- throughout the year. So yeah, well, that that's, comes that's into play context. as well. Right. Yes. So I want to come back to the latest developments, which you covered uh, earlier in the week. But Leah, the, I mean, the idea of handcuffing and arresting someone for pointing his or her fingers at another student, I assume outraged many of the people who read the Kansas City Star. And for that matter, NBC picked up the story, didn't it, Murray? Oh, and yeah. C- I mean, network television and CNN and others. Yeah, it's it's seen by, I think, the majority of the commenters. I didn't really see anybody that took the opposing side that, yes, this kid should have been um, handcuffed, but the majority of people sort of think that this is a harmless action. This is something, as you said, Dave, that's been happening for generations. It's something that just is done. I think I have a picture of myself one year dressed as Bonnie of Bonnie and Clyde making a finger pistol in a photo, and it was harmless. Yeah. But let me play just for fun on the podcast here, not devil's advocate so much as just sort of suggest this. While this has been going on forever, and you know, it's clear that concern about violent incidents in schools is at a fever pitch, Murray, right? That people really want to err on the side of caution and now, now, whether a felony charge and handcuffs and custody were called for is another issue. But the concept of teachers and SROs and others responding to a perceived threat is very real now. In a way, it would not, you've written about this, right. that it would not have been even a couple of years ago, maybe. Yeah, I do think that um, school districts and schools, principals, teachers, I think they're terrified, really, of, you know, are we going to be the next, you know, horrible, the scene of the next horrible incident? So they are very sensitive and heightened about this sort of thing. I mean, you know, we all have heard the stories. And I I spoke with the police chief in Overland Park, um, and he said something that I thought you know, really kind of goes to the core of of why this happened the way it did. And that is, um, he said, you know, we've all seen these terrible things happening. um, And after they happen, people point to the police and say, they were signs, there were signs. How come you did not see the signs? That's the point. And he says, you know, so this time, you know, you know, we see the the signs perhaps and so we act and, you know, and this is what we get. Right, right. But you still have to ask questions about, you know, what happens, what transpired between this young lady, the principal, and the SRO officer in terms of a conversation that led them to um, determine that this was a sign of something horrible to come. Right, but but the next question, of course, is even if you assume it's a sign of something, must you handcuff a a 13-year-old girl? Must you charge her with a felony? Must you escort her from the premises in presumably a way that the other students were at least aware of it. I mean, you know, she actually moved away, did she not, after this incident, which we'll get back to in a minute. But 
But I think, Leah, right, most of the re reaction is not so much to the oh, the concern as it was to the what appears to be a real overreaction yeah, to what happened. Yeah, overreaction is the exact word that I think a lot of people are using. I mean, not to mention the fact that she was charged with something called threatening. The school does not have that as a policy. What the school has is something called intimidation and bullying right, policy. Right. So they have to determine whether what's what that means. But then she was charged with criminal threatening, which is a felony. And as we reported, Dave, remember we reported about there were students in another um, school just a week before. Right. With actual weapons. That brought <laughs> weapons to school and were charged with a misdemeanor. Right. So do we get any sense, Murray, of regret from the SRO or the police department or the school district? Is there any <laughs> review of procedures underway? Are they rethinking how they responded to this incident? Or do they need to? Well, we're, we're looking into that right now, actually, but from I can tell you from the um, police department point of view, I did talk to the police chief, and he supports his officer and what his officer right. did, how he handled it. I, I will say the Shawnee Mission District seemed to put as much distance as it could between itself and the officer in this case. They did. They said that, you know, we don't arrest students, um, and they did suspend the girl. Um, of course, she ended up leaving anyway, but they said it's the police that, that do the arresting. However, I'm, I must say that she went to the principal's office first and talked to the principal, and at some point, the SRO officer was brought in, and why they, that decision was made, I'm not sure. Right, but, but there will be some effort to fully understand yes. that because as a policy matter, and just as a practical matter, Leah, if, if you're a student at a middle school in, the, in any district but the Shawnee Mission District, and you think you can get a rise out of people by pointing your finger like a gun at folks, that's going to happen a lot. I mean, that's just how students can be, right, Moraine? Absolutely. The, 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 I mean, you know, it's so hard for students to sort of know what their behavior standards need to be. Well, that's why I've been hearing from a lot of parents who've called to say, I mean, they're just What's screaming. The yeah, yeah, what is the deal? What do I need to be telling my kid? Can my Is this setting a precedent for how they're going to react to something like that? And one parent was just, you know, terrified. She's like, I'm telling my kindergartner, don't ever do that. You can go to jail for that. Right, you, right. You know. But it's not just pointing your finger, Leah. I mean, it, you know, I, I mean, I don't know if your school experience was the same as mine, but Kids are on the playground, you get bumped or shoved, and some kid will say, you know, I'm going to kick your butt if you do that again. Here we go. I mean, that's that's the dilemma for a lot of folks, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, so the bullying aspect of the story I find extremely interesting. The fact that there is some evidence that she might have been being bullied, that when she used the finger pistol and pointed out those people and then pointed at herself kind of says to me that maybe there was something else going on there that maybe this is an issue of depression. It's just very interesting and I want to know so much more. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the questions also have been, you know, what about counseling? Is that um, a better alternative um, than having than arresting a child um, and charging her with a felony? And does that further bully the child? Yeah. You know, where where does that come into play. So yeah, there, there are a lot of questions that I think um, need to be answered. However, you know, school districts are notorious for not discussing uh, 
cases like this or or anything that surrounds a, when a case has actually happened, they always say, oh, we can't talk about that. Right. So it's going to be interesting to see how much information they're willing to provide about how they're going to proceed in the, in the but, future. Yeah, right, but that leads directly into sort of what we should talk about, which is the latest developments in this case. Because it did end up in court, yes. and you were able to report a little bit on it, bring us up to date on what the status of the legal case is now. Well, the status of the legal case is, as, is that it's continuing. Um, it was mentioned and discussed in court, um, the idea of a diversion program, which would basically strip any charges from this young lady um, and then set up some criteria, things that she has to do perform in a certain learn. manner. I'll learn. Yes, that, and if she follows those things, she'll then the, be fine. She'll be fine. Yeah. And those would be negotiated by the court. But, but let's not let the prosecutor off the hook completely here either. I mean, you know, the arrest happened, the handcuffs happened, but someone had to file the felony charge. Where did common sense come into this story, or was it? Is it impossible? I mean, I mean this in a serious way. Is it, are we living in a time array where common sense is almost uh, irrelevant? It, because we live in such a concerned, heightened awareness, uh, you know, I mean, I said this on TV last week, after the Sandy Hook massacre, you, the, the, every student in every classroom in the country you know, his or her experience changed because of that. And so it may be that common sense is not possible here. Well, that that, that may be the case. Two things that I'm hearing. For one, I think that, I don't know this for certain because the prosecutor has not talked to me directly, but I do think that the, pros that the DA's office followed the same rule as the police department, as the school, and that is to err on the side of caution. Yeah, and again, without second-guessing them, everybody is, you know, follow the rule, this is the law. No one seems to have stood up and said, we're going to look really bad if we charge a 13-year-old girl for pointing at a student with her finger. Yes, I agree with that, um, and but I do think that is part of what Explain happened. Explain it. It explains I, what happened. Yes, yes. I, I do think that's part of what happened. I also think that because adults are the ones making the rules, and apparently this is not being relayed to students um, in, in any real um, fashion, we're putting too much onus on these kids. I mean, you know especially with something like this, finger pointing, who knew You know that pointing your finger could land you in jail and have you charged with a felony? I think that if that's the case, that they ought to be telling these kids yeah, what, right. the, um, what the standard is and what to expect and what they can get in trouble for. Because right. I'm sure this girl did not know that pointing her finger at her classmates could land her in On jail. On the other hand, the students who were involved in carrying guns into another school probably knew that was not the proper behavior. So does the school actually have some sort of guidelines for gestures that you cannot make? Because it almost seemed as if they had made it clear that you couldn't point at somebody that way. But at the same time, like how could they have known? Well, I did look at their um, bullying and intimidation policy, and I, I read that. And 
it's broad, not vague, but broad. And so it doesn't have specifics like hand gestures or that you cannot make, but it, it just says that um, if you put someone in fear of their life or where they feel um, really threatened or frightened, then that is considered bullying or, or, or intimidation. So it's the perception of a threat more than it is the actual action of making a pistol. Well, yes, and they also said that they would be looking at intent. So once they see there's a uh, perception of a threat, then they should they will go in and look at the um, the intent and the likelihood that this could be brought out. So, you know, for example, if you make you know that gesture, making your finger into a gun, and you point at someone and they feel threatened, and you have access to weapons at home or something, or you've had something in your past that indicate that you're likely right. to to carry through with this threat, that that means something different. And I will add that after talking with the family, this young lady did not have access to weapons. They do not have weapons in their home. And, and there's no indication that th- that she's done this before or that this is a routine thing no. or that there's been a problem at this school, no. in, in which, you know, in, in, that people have been pointing their fingers at each other or that there was some something out of hand. It was just an isolated incident that worried some people, including parents and presumably others in the classroom, and then led to this amazing story. Yes, I mean, there are, there's all, everyone's speculating as to what was behind all of this, and from so many different people, law enforcement from other parts of the the country calling me saying that are they certain that the children who were bullying her did not also set her up um, or did not also make the phone call or did not also go home and complain to their parents that they felt so threatened by this child well and and, you know was it really a gun what i mean you can you know did did you point one finger and is your thumb i mean it, it the ludicrousness of it really leaps off the page. Right. So, yeah, it could be that she was pointing and maybe they thought it was a gun or, I mean, yeah, it just, just it goes on and on. We're we're about out of time. You're so kind to give us your time, Maria, as always. Um, So where do we stand now? Do we go back to court in 60 days or is there some decision-making process or where are we Right, because they they discussed this, um, the idea of a... um, a program that would write this off of her record. So they're going to come back because her lawyer doesn't know if that's exactly the way he wants to go or whether he wants to just try to get the whole thing knocked down completely. Yeah, so they're going to come back December 17th um, to court. And let me just say that she's living in California, so that means traveling from California back. And they want to move to Norway, isn't that correct? Yeah, her parents were in the process of moving to Norway when this happened. They'd already sold their home. Um, And so the parents did move because they had no place to live and she's staying with her grandfather in California so that she could be um, available to deal with this particular case. Amazing stuff. Marae Williams, thanks so much for coming in. Leah, stay with us. We're going to take a break. When we come back, let's talk some baseball in KCK. Hey there, it's Leah. Hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you like what you hear, help us support this podcast and the journalism that reporters at the Kansas City Star do every day by subscribing. There's an easy way for you to do it. Head to kansascity.com background. You'll even get a special discount just for being a Deep Background listener. 
Subscribing at that URL will get you three months of unlimited digital access for $1.99 total. You get access to KansasCity.com, the e-edition of the newspaper, mobile apps, and more for three whole months, and it only costs you $1.99. It's a pretty sweet deal, plus you'll be supporting journalism that makes a difference in Kansas City. So grab your computer or mobile device and go to KansasCity.com background. And hey, thanks for listening. Okay, Dave Helling from the Star's editorial board, back on Deep Background with Leah Becerra and Kevin Hardy of the Star joining us now to talk about the mighty T-Bones, which uh, apparently cannot die (laughs) because they were what, Kevin, padlocked out of their stadium in Kansas City, Kansas, and then sold, and then just bring us up to date on what's going on. Right. Well, they've been in financial trouble for quite some time, and um, Unified Government over there has been working for several years to try to keep the team alive by writing checks in KCK, <laughs> right? By writing checks, by cutting, um, cutting their rent, and, and trying to, well, also outright buying the stadium, which was privately developed, trying to keep the team going. But um, the the past due rent, past due utilities got so too burdensome for the county that they came back in August and said, you know, enough is enough, and you need to pay up or you're you're out. And they followed through this week and kicked him out, changed the locks. With, had locksmiths there early Monday morning and padlocked the gates and said, you're done. We should, of course, explain who the T-Bones are to people who, who are listening. They're an independent minor league, way low minor league team that plays out at the Legends Complex in Kansas. Right. Kansas. This, is, this is not a you know affiliate of a major league team. They play in the uh, American Association of Independent Professional Baseball. So... Um, um, just a much different world than you know a, a, an affiliate of the Cubs or the Royals. Right. Now, Leah, I was around when the T-Bone started, and people were excited, and the name T-Bones got everyone's imag- imagination. And the Royals were horrible at the time. So the idea of a pleasant weekend in Wyandotte County watching baseball as it was meant to be played was actually pretty attractive, and they've had some players come in. You know, Frank White was out there for a while, may still be associated with the team a little bit. Um, but but not recently, right? I mean, I don't think a lot of people wrote in and said, boy, this is horrible. The T-Bones are going out of business. You know, I've lived in Kansas City for a little bit more than three years, and I didn't know what the T-Bones were until the story started to kind of come <laughs> up again. Um, and initially, when... I think, what was it, maybe two months ago, Kevin, that you wrote sort of the initial T-Bone story, they could get kicked out, they've got all this back debt. Um, That story did really well. A lot of people read it, and I almost think that it was sort of like a a joking reaction to it, just because it's like, oh my gosh, they're going to get kicked out. How silly is that? Right. And now we've had all these follow-up stories, and it almost seems like at the end of the day, for a lot of readers, at least, that if the T-Bones went away, their lives fundamentally would not change that much. Right. They just don't have many people who, who go to the games. That's their problem. That's why they can't pay their bill, right? Um, that That's something that they do say. I, I think they're – I don't have their latest attendance numbers, but they say that their attendance began dropping, I think, in about 2010, and that's when um, some of their financial problems began mounting. Yeah. But the, the sort of – the, the precursor to all this is the investment that they made in the stadium 
and the owners were never really able to recoup that investment and that it seems like those this thing has been snowballing for years them trying to to recover the cost they made initially yeah. to go out there but, and the other problem with the t-bones of course is the royals got good and and when you know people had money to spend to watch baseball they wanted to go watch a team that could play in the world series or the playoffs which the royals did for a couple of years and the interest then in the T-Bones dropped a little bit. But Wyandotte County has been, and the unified government, uh, Kevin, has by almost any standard been extraordinarily accommodating to the team, right? I mean, they've paid back bills, they've forgiven rent, and now there's a new owner, they're thinking about further subsidies for the stadium out there. Bring us up to speed on those right. decisions. So the county has already purchased the stadium and made um, you know, multi-million dollar upgrades there in, in recent years uh, as part of their efforts to keep this team going. Now they will, um, they're poised to vote on a new lease agreement, management agreement with a new owner, and they will spend up at least a million dollars in Kansas star bonds on further stadium refurbishments. And the new owner has agreed to spend at least half that amount. So the, the idea, I guess, is to sort of inject this thing with more life and, and get, make it more multi-purpose, more year-round, and hopefully they think that will that will uh, revive the financial side of things. Yeah, um, we've. I think we've got a race this weekend out at the Speedway. Do we not? And and is this is, are the T bones the sort of failure out there that proves the rule, Kevin? I mean, based on your own sense of it. I mean, the soccer team does well out there. We think. I mean, the stadium is typically filled, and racing isn't what it was 10 or 15 years ago, but you're going to have a crowd out here, out there this weekend, but not so much maybe minor league baseball. Um, yeah, it's hard to tell. I think if you look at the league that they play in, the, the league says that most of the other teams um, have really stable ownership. They've been there 20 years. It's a good business for them. Uh, obviously, it's not uh, David Glass and the Kansas City Royals, but it's a stable or John business. Sherman or, or whoever John Sherman, runs it, right? <laughs> but it's it's a stable business, and the, what's happening here, they say, is an aberration. So it's really just hard to tell. Um, you hear some people kind of uh, in the community say maybe it's because we have we are a major league market, and you have this isn't sort of like Omaha where there only is a minor league team. Right. Then maybe there's some competing interests there, but it's just hard to tell. Right, and it was always sold as sort of a fun family. Again, baseball the way it was meant to be played, and you get to know the team and the players, and they sign autographs. And I've never been to a game, but I've been out to cover stories around games. People sit on the hill, you mm -hmm. know, in the general admission, and it, throw out a blanket, and it's very sort of Bull Durham-esque, you know. Um, uh, but... But after a while, that bloom apparently wears off a little bit, maybe. Right. And I, I do know that for that association that they are in, corporate events, business events, that's really a big part of the business. Right. So, And like you said, right here, it seems like it's a very family thing. It's less focused on baseball. It's kind of more of an experience, a, play, yeah. a cheap cheap place to go out you know, on a Saturday afternoon. Yeah. Now, I will tell you this too, Leah, when in the, back in the day, you know, I reported on the story when they built the racetrack, the, the, which was the first thing. It was really the start of the whole... The Speedway. The Speedway mm -hmm. with, with the Legends and uh, Nebraska Furniture Mart and that. I mean, it was just farmland out there. In fact, one of the stories we covered was the county went in and the city and condemned a bunch of houses and farmland to build all this stuff and the residents were not happy. And the construction of the ballpark was seen as integral to that but it doesn't seem that integral to it anymore that they still get pretty good traffic 
And again, maybe that's why people weren't writing in saying, oh, we can't lose the T-bones, you know, because there are other things to do out there. Yeah, there are a lot of things to do out there. I would argue that um, Sporting Kansas City has such a large following, even from the Missouri side of the right. metro area, that it's kind of hard to beat that experience, especially at like ticket prices, if you consider how inexpensive it is to go see one of those yeah. games. Yeah. But there's this other piece to all of this. Obviously, we have a Major League Baseball team in the metro area, but even Major League Baseball has this problem right now yes, where people <laughs> don't want to watch it because they say it's boring. Um, and we all know that these baseball games can be very long. Um, there could be very few runs scored. So there's all those issues. And I kind of wonder if that isn't part of it, too. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I think a lot of major Major League Sports have had those issues with attendance. And there's a lot of questions about what the future of live sporting events is in some of these leagues for sure right but but attendance for for the sporting remains high right i mean so it, yeah soccer's it, what soccer the be- first or second most popular sport yeah. in the world now so. just because i'm an old fart which i can say on a podcast <laughs> uh soccer bores the hell out of me i mean i you know I, i'll watch it but i'd rather watch a baseball game but not a t-bones game not a t-bones game i mean i watched the playoffs last night, and I'll, I'll watch, you know, although I haven't been out to the Royals for a couple of years, they've been so horrible. And by the way, the cost is high. You go out to a Royals game, you know, if you and your wife, it's a $100 deal, which, you know, if you're going to lose 100 games, that's a big investment. One of the other things that was always a selling point for the T-Bones was you can go out for five bucks. Or, right. You know, it's a much cheaper alternative to see baseball. But even that wasn't a draw after a while. Yeah, it was something that I think didn't have to feel like such a splurge or such a... Right. You know, we're going to go to one you can go out game. to dinner. There's yeah. a little... There's you know, shopping. There's... Shopping, and then there's some places to eat around there and make a day of it. But I think, and you know, the new owners obviously think there is a buck to be made on that model still. Um, they want to invest in volleyball, pickleball, adding some other things going on out there, I guess, with the hopes to create kind of more energy there that can drive year-round, year-round business. So yeah. we'll see if they can have a better go. Final question. Do, you, do we expect any pushback on the star bonds or taxpayer subsidies uh, for this project, Kevin. I mean, you know, they have gotten a lot of public money. Now, I, I had to laugh because the previous owners said things like, well, the Royals get subsidized on their stadium, and to which you say, yes, that's true, and be but their major the league baseball. <laughs> they're not independent league, minor league baseball. Uh, and by the way, they didn't come here with the idea that we'll be private and then someday we'll be public. But you would, you know, the star bonds are under a little pressure anyway. Right, and just because I think the legislature is worried about these, you know, losing the revenue, um, will there be? This seems like it might be something the legislature will want to talk about next winter. Yeah, I think that widely the star bonds program is just under a lot of scrutiny in the state by both Republicans and Democrats. I think at the UG, um, the last time that they injected a lot of money into the T bones, there was a lot of debate. So we'll have to see tomorrow night when they vote on this, whether they want to go again and and give it another go. Uh, but t- from their position, they're in a pretty tough position right. here where it's either 
do this or there probably is no future for baseball at that right stadium. and then you just leave the stadium empty and it deteriorates and you've got to pay a certain amount of money just for upkeep anyway unless you just want to tear it down right so i i, I would expect there to be some debate and discussion but but who knows what they'll ultimately decide all right well we'll know because we cover it that's what we do here at the star kevin hardy thanks so much for coming in my thanks. co-host leah becerra thanks to you for joining us for two really interesting stories that the stores uh, star has reported on in the last couple of weeks uh, again, thanks for being with us. I'm Dave Helling with the STARS Editorial Board. You, my friend, have been on Deep Background.